Welcome to the Silver Screen Guide Podcast. Join Corbin and Alan, along with guest hosts, as they bring their love for the cinema to discuss films from every genre and decade. Learn about the history of the film, little-known facts, and insightful explorations while they enjoy discussing your favorite film. The curtain is rising and your podcast is starting. So sit back, relax, and enjoy your guide to the silver screen. Welcome back, listeners, to the ninth installment in our M. Night Shyamalan movie review series. Today we are reviewing Avatar, The Last Airbender, or more simply, The Last Airbender. This is your co-host, Corbin. And I'm Alan. And this is Shyamalan's actually first screenplay based on previous material. This is not one Shyamalan thought up himself, which is kind of surprising to me. Yeah, it's interesting that um, Shyamalan now is moving into more Hollywood productions at this point. This will be, and we'll find out here in a second, his most expensive picture that he, I think, has ever done, and I think so far has ever done, if I'm not mistaken. Um, But yeah, the Shyamalan that we know has kind of changed a bit from more or less the sixth sense up until now uh because where the whereas the sixth sense in the first three movies actually i would even say four movies are rather adult in how they handle the pg-13 rating and its subject material this one's very much the opposite where it's very kid-centric and very family driven to me i'm thinking Shyamalan doesn't want to be typecast probably as simply a horror director or a suspense or thriller, the macabre, anything like that, especially because his previous film was was supposed to be kind of this 50s homage horror type film, The Happening, which you can listen to our review of listeners. And of course, in the link in the description below, we will have all of our Shyamalan reviews up to this point. So there's still plenty of time to catch up. But last time Shyamalan's film was his very first R rating. And then he jumps to his second PG rating and his first PG was wide awake, which came out way before, like 12 years before this. So I, I don't know. It's just, it's just an odd choice. Let's pick Shyamalan to adapt the smash hit Nickelodeon show. Right. And what's funny too is, uh, before he made this movie, um, a little bit before he made this movie, he didn't actually know what Avatar The Last Airbender was, the TV show. He oh. found out about it because his daughter wanted to play, wanted to go as Katara uh, for Halloween. And that's where he found out about it. And after that, it kind of became a big family thing for him and his family to sit down and watch the show. Um, and then it wasn't long after that he decided to start working towards a, a motion picture with this. And he even uh, went up to the two creators uh, Michael and Brian, and uh, they even said that they were enthused to have uh, Shyamalan come out and make this movie for them. Um, their only restriction was they just wanted to keep it PG. So it, it's interesting that uh, the director uh, decided that he wanted to do this. I guess maybe because of the power that he had, because of some of the movies that he's done before, he, this is probably what led to him getting the deal for this picture and actually having, you know, actually being able to go along with it and be the director of it. And it, in some ways, I guess having a more kid centric film is not surprising because all of his films, for the most part, have featured children prominently right. in some sort of important way. And he has shown 
he does want to go more so into the fantasy realm because with Lady in the Water, that started as a a bedtime story that he created for his children. And I can see some of that growing out of it. Plus, I'm also thinking if I'm Shyamalan, this is a way for me to get out of this pit I've dug myself in where everybody's kind of starting to hate my movies, whereas in the beginning, everybody loved them. And at the time, Avatar on TV was a huge hit with kids, and it still is very popular to this day with uh, on IMDb a 9.2, making it the 13th greatest TV show of all time. So Shyamalan wanting to ride that wave and be the one to bring the big screen adaption and everybody just love him again. I can see why he would pick the project. Yeah. And even in the last movie with the happening, um, he even stated uh, that he, he said in one of the special features, I'm Mr. PG 13 and that he also wanted to kind of break away from that, uh, from that, I guess the label that he has on himself and because with the happening, the studio also wanted a radar picture. But this is also one, uh, once again, another another story of he is breaking away from the mold, which we've kind of been seeing the last few movies. He's mo- he's breaking away from the movies that he is, I guess, most known for doing more horror driven, more a little bit more darker and a bit more adult, but still within the PG-13 realm. And now he's breaking away doing something what before this was rated R and way outside of his comfort zone from what we've seen before. Um, may not have been super great, but now we have a different the other way around where it's very kid centric and is also it's aimed towards kids and families, not necessarily uh, more adult driven. And so it's interesting to see this man uh, trying to break away from that mode. And I've mentioned before in the last uh, couple of podcasts that I'm I'm on board to a certain degree with the change he's making. I like the change and how he doesn't want to stick with just one genre uh, for his whole career. And that is cool. That is something you honestly don't see a lot with most directors. They'll always kind of have a certain look and style to their films usually, but usually a director kind of follows within the footsteps of the previous films that they've made before. Um, The only director that's working today that I can think of that decided to break the mold with great success was Christopher Nolan. Once he took upon the Batman trilogy, of course, he really elevated a superhero film to a really high level, which I don't think we've really seen the likes of since. But nevertheless, uh, Shyamalan also is working with a different production company. He's working with Paramount this time. So he's making his rounds to all of the major studios, just one film after the other. Right, because originally he began after his first two movies, he started with Touchstone, which was owned by Disney. And then for Lady in the Water, he broke away from that um, and went with Warner Bros. And now he's with Paramount now. So he's kind of hopped around the big studios uh, these last few years trying to find, I guess, the studio to stay with, um, which most directors do. They usually find that that one studio that they tend to stay with for a, a long time, if not their whole career. Um, so it's it's he's been hopping around a bit. But luckily, Paramount does have a lot of money and they were willing to give in about 250 million dollars for what would become a whole hopefully it become a trilogy of movies now okay that doesn't ever come to fruition and we'll get into that here in just a second as to why that is but yeah they paramount was willing to shell in 250 million dollars for a trilogy um maybe shaman would helmet i don't really have uh 
explicit details on if he would be like the leader of this, but that is still a good amount of money that they were willing to give him or at least start what would become a franchise. Oh, absolutely. And my guess is $250 million, especially in 2010, that was a ton of money. But -hmm. considering this film's budget was half of that, I'm guessing what they were probably going to do if this was a smash hit, they're probably going to shoot the sequels back to back, which would have saved time and money and probably would have kept that budget around that 250 million mark. But did you also see who produced this film? I was really shocked to see that, to see Kathleen Kennedy's name and Frank Marshall produced this project. And for those of you who are thinking, wait, who are those people? Kathleen Kennedy and Frank Marshall watch pretty much almost any Steven Spielberg movie. Yep. And they are on there producing with Spielberg. Currently, Kathleen Kennedy is in charge of Star Wars right now. So big names to also back this project. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Big names all the way around. And so at this point, I would be I would say it's safe to say that Shaman has become fully engulfed by the Hollywood circle, more or less. Um However, actor-wise, this movie's a bit different because usually with a big Hollywood production, you will have a few recognizable names um, in the cast. But this time it's a bit different. We have a lot of either newcomers or like not so well-known actors. Uh, so, for example, the actor of Aang, played by Noah Ringer, is this is his first acting gig. Uh, he there were I heard rumors going into this that he had sent in uh, like an audition tape to Shyamalan and that's how he got uh, the role. I did look this up. That is kind of kind of true. Uh, he more or less sent in the role because um, he, he, so he practiced Taekwondo. He's been doing it since he was 10 years old. And because he used to shave his head to keep his, uh, to keep his head cool off, he had been nicknamed Avatar. And so he, when he heard about this movie, he decided, yeah, to send in um, an audition tape to Shyamalan and then Shyamalan gave him the role. Uh, Nicola Peltz also plays uh, Katara in the movie. And this is also kind of like with Haley Joel Osment in The Sixth Sense. This is another role that Shyamalan just didn't want anybody else to play. They, she wanted that one person, in this in this case, Nicola Peltz, to play the role of Katara. And so other than that, the role of Sokka was going to be played... Or sorry, the role of Zuko was uh, first going to be played by who, who would eventually become Sokka. Uh, he sent an audition tape for that, but event, but instead got the role of Sokka. Um, so the cast here is interestingly uh, unpopular considering the movie and the budget that we have. Yeah, they are really unpopular and they've mostly gone on to do almost nothing. I think that yeah. Katora, what's your name? Katara. Katara, okay. Katara, I saw her... When she was a little older in the first season of Bates Motel. Right. I know yes. Jackson Rathbone from the Twilight series. That's I right. Yeah. I don't really know him from anything else. I don't. Ang, his name is Ang, but the movie <laughs> called him Ang. I couldn't even believe you tell you how frustrated I was when I first saw that in the theater. Yeah. Okay. Ang. Yeah. I have no idea who he is. And, uh, well, probably the most famous actor in this film is uh, Dave Patel. Right who has gone on to very critical films, Oscar acclaim in the, in the past few years. Lion, Life of Pi, uh, he's very famous. His uncle, uh, 
is in Iron Man in the beginning. I think you're right. Yeah, he's the one in the cave and one of the one of the bad guys that they drown in a big ball of water towards the end. He's he's in a lot of stuff, but he's never like a really big name, kind of more so a comedic actor. So my thought is Shyamalan is probably he's really going different for this one, as yeah. we've been clearly stating. So he wants to do something with the cast. He wants to cast a lot of relative unknowns, um, probably. I don't think he made the film feel any more authentic because these people aren't really the correct ethnicity for their perspective roles anyway, which confused and frustrated a lot of people. Mm -hmm. But I'm kind of thinking of more recently, I heard Taika Waititi is going to be adapting uh, Akira for Warner Brothers for live action. And he said he is going, supposedly, he's going to cast a bunch of relative unknowns a bunch of relative Japanese kids for this uh, biker gang in Akira. So I don't know. I think some directors probably think they're being really smart when they do that, but you need people with acting abilities to right. make your a good movie. Right. And I mean, that's the thing that Star Wars does all the time. They always cast relatively unknown actors or actresses, and, and especially in the newer, this, these newer trilogies or the newer trilogy um, where yeah, that's true. They aren't really well known, but then after the movie comes out, they're almost cemented into just Hollywood culture. But going back to what you said earlier, where these kids aren't exactly the right ethnicity, yeah, there was quite a bit of controversy when this movie came out. Uh, it was being accused of whitewashing. Um, Shyamalan did come out and say uh, that's not, he doesn't really understand why people are so upset about it because there are a lot of ethnicities being on display here in this movie. But it did, in fact, uh, stir up a boycott or call for a boycott from Media Action Network, which I guess hadn't done this kind of a thing for 18 years, according to Wikipedia. So this movie did get a bit of controversy when it first came out, which is also kind of interesting because you know, it's a kid's movie. Um, but yeah, there was also there was a boycott called on it and Shyamalan didn't really understand what the problem was. So yeah, it, that was also a part of this history when it first was being released. I guess their ethnicity doesn't really bother me. It just doesn't make a lot of sense. And mm. at times it does take me out of the film because the Fire Nation is all the same ethnicity. Yep. But then the Water Tribe is well, pretty much all white people. And then the Earth Tribe is all Asian people. And Aang is white i guess i don't know it, it just feels wildly inconsistent yeah with with this world and they're all supposed to be contained within like the same region of the hemisphere yet uh they don't really look alike so i don't right. know I, it doesn't really bother me it just seems a little strange right so let's get into budget um i mentioned this earlier this is Shyamalan's most expensive and i still think it is his most expensive overall picture that he's ever done 150 million dollars for the budget um now there were marketing numbers for this one usually you don't see them spit out the marketing numbers but marketing for this was 120 million we talked about marketing in oh what podcast was it a few podcasts ago um where we mentioned oh no it was uh Men in Black International, that's what it was, where we found out that the marketing for that was 150 million and that that was relatively low ball compared, compared to what most pictures of the same caliber end up coming to. Um, so 120 million for marketing, which is still really good. I know they had like a bunch of, they had a pretty big um, action, action figure 
push along with uh, costumes and things like that. So total $270 million for this picture, which is over what they were going to give to the whole uh, trilogy, what hopefully would become a trilogy if they had gone that far with it. Now, again, that wasn't including marketing. That was probably just budget itself. Yeah, that, that that's crazy numbers for oh, yeah. Shyamalan, considering his last budget, if I'm not mistaken, was in the 40s. Mm-hmm. And it had a terrible gross. Um, but this film did gross far better than his previous films. Right. Yeah, it, so it opened on July 1st, 2010. Uh, it came in with an opening weekend of $40.3 million, which is not great for an opening weekend. But it did domestically get $131.7 million. Uh, foreign market at 187.9 million for a worldwide total of 319.7 million. So it did it pretty, pretty all right in the box office. Not, I, it's probably still considered a flop by Paramount standards, but it did make some pretty good money nonetheless, especially compared to what Shyamalan has pushed, has pulled in before and how much budget he was given. Yeah, I'm sure Paramount was disappointed because this mm-hmm. film, due to the except, due, due to the success among children and with their parents and even teenagers, this film should have done way better than 40 million opening weekend, and oh, yeah. it should have done far better worldwide. These were fairly low numbers domestically and foreign. I understand opening weekend; it was beat out by Twilight Eclipse because that Twilight train is just going too fast to stop. Yeah, but uh. It did come in above Toy Story 3, which had been out for a while, Grown Ups, and Night and Day. Nevertheless, this movie should have been, should have gave Twilight a closer run for its money and uh, just done better overall. Oh, yeah. No, it absolutely should have. And in some ways, I, it's surprising that it didn't. But I would, have, I would like to guess that uh, the controversy that came out before it was released with whitewashing may have had something to do with these numbers. Um, that's just my guess. I think it's a pretty good guess. But yeah, you're right. It came out when it was opened. When it came out, it was at number two. And then for the next week, it went down to number three. Uh, with Eclipse still at number one, Toy Story 3 went back up to number two. Um, and then for week, I guess, four I have in here? That might be week three. But uh, it went back, went down to number seven when Despicable Me came out. And around this time, too, you had Despicable Me, Sorcerer's Apprentice, and Toy Story 3, all of which are kids' movies coming out around the same time toy story 3 is probably the oldest one in this bunch that's been out the longest at this point but you do have a lot of competition here uh with a lot more kids movies a lot more pg uh films being released roughly the same time in the summer and i was definitely there opening weekend uh i went with a mutual friend of ours i remember being very excited for this film i only remember seeing one teaser trailer and that of ang whipping his staff around kind of blowing out the candles and relighting them and then it cuts to like the big fire nation ships kind of shooting their fireballs that's the only real marketing i remember for this film but nevertheless i was excited i honestly don't remember if i saw it in 3d or not um i I very well might have saw it in 3d i think i was mainly disappointed because the names are said differently and that really kind of i'm like this isn't the avatar i remember Um, It didn't quite have the excitement and the grip of the TV show, which I had really enjoyed. I don't believe I ever got to see the entirety of the television show. Have you, Alan? I have seen good chunks of it. I know I've seen pretty much the entire first season. 
I think it that one also may have been in chunks. But I know I've seen pretty much all the first season and then bits and pieces of two and three. So not all the way through. I haven't seen all the episodes, but I've seen a good chunk of them. But it also has been a few years. So my memory in the first season is relatively intact. But for the next two seasons, which we don't ever get into in this in this movie, it's relatively contained the first season. Uh, my memory for those is pretty spotty. So uh, did uh, audiences and critics uh, like this one? Were they pretty excited and glad about the movie? really um (laughs) (laughs) this is uh so far Shyamalan's lowest rated movie almost all across the board uh IMDb 4.1 which last week was I think a straight 5.0 it was which is really bad um Metascore 20 uh Rotten Tomatoes 5% critic score and a 30% audience score and letterbox with a 1.2 However, cinema score surprisingly is higher than last week, which was at a D. This week is at a C. Still not great, but is above what we saw last week. Yeah, and even the audience score for Rotten Tomatoes is 6% higher than last week's film. Mm -hmm. So I guess you could say audiences did like this film better than The Happening, Um, except critics hated it way more. and. IMDb is more so kind of a testament to time, like how well it's aged over time. And so as of right now, that 4.1 is just an abysmal score. That's a really, really bad score. It's, it's unfortunately bad is what it is considering the director that we have that we've seen before here. And last time the happening was nominated for a couple Razzies. This time this film swept the Razzies. Oh yeah. It did. It had nine nominations at the Razzies, which is ridiculous. Yeah, and it won five of them, including Worst Picture. And um, I thought one of the Razzies was really funny. Um, It's Worst On-Screen Couple, and for that, the entire cast was nominated. Oh, that's funny. (laughs) Just the entire cast. (laughs) Oh, that's funny. So you can tell, listeners, this film is pretty much hated it is uh hated but do we hate it i think that's the big question we're coming Mm -hmm. back to this film it's been almost 10 years so maybe it's aged better i know at the time i read roger ebert's review and he said that the 3d was awful the 3d made the film look dark and gritty and grimy and it was pretty much unwatchable whereas I watched this in my theater room. I wanted to get the closest theatrical experience that I that I could get. And from my look, I didn't see any dark grittiness. Uh, we'll talk about it here during the review. But from my viewing, I thought the film actually looked, it looked really good, especially for a 10-year-old film. Oh, yeah. I watched it on a 55-inch TV in my basement, but I did have surround sound. So that's nice. Uh, yeah, it looked fine. All right, listeners, if you haven't seen... Avatar The Last Airbender, which I guess we did forget to mention that this film, I believe it was originally released as Avatar The Last Airbender in certain like marketing promotionals, possibly even its first week of release. They might have dropped that title before then, but I know that was that did actually cause a lot of confusion naming the film Avatar because not that many months prior, just the year, year before James Cameron's Avatar, the biggest film of all time. Not anymore. Not anymore. anymore. (laughs) Um, That did kind of cause some confusion. So I thought they would want to keep the title to hopefully like 
increased their box office numbers, but they just dropped it. So sometimes you'll see it as Avatar The Last Airbender, and sometimes you'll see it as just The Last Airbender. Right. Okay, well, I guess it's time for a plot summary. That's right. So if you haven't seen The Last Airbender, go to Amazon Prime right now. Unless you don't Mm -hmm. have it, then go rent it anywhere you please. Go ahead and watch the film. Come back and click play here on the podcast, and we will be ready to talk about it. Okay, so for those who have seen the show, this is going to be kind of nothing new. Uh, This movie is basically uh, highlights from season one of the TV show. So here we go. Hundred years have passed since the Fire Nation began making efforts to control the whole world. The Avatar, someone who can bend all four elements and is meant to keep peace with the world, has vanished, leaving the world unbalanced. One day, siblings Katara, played by Nicola Peltz, and Sokka, played by Jackson Rathbone, are, who are both a part of the Southern Water Tribe, discover something in the ice. Katara des- decides that she better dig for it, and up comes the Avatar, named Aang, played by Noah Ringer. Enclosed in a ball of ice with this trusty flying bison, Appa. A beam of light shoots out into the sky when he when the ice cracks, leading the exiled Fire Nation prince, Zuko, played by Dave Patel, to follow it. He arrives at the tribe and forcefully takes Aang aboard, aboard his ship. Katara and Sokka feel, feel a responsibility for this kid and follow after him, riding on Appa. Aang escapes Zuko and hops aboard his flying bison with his new friends as they head towards the southern air temple. There, Aang finds that he really was encased in that ice for 100 years, and that no one, as no one is there to meet him, except for the bones of his friends and teachers. Aang and friends then head to the Earth Temple and find a bunch of Earthbenders enslaved by the Fire Nation. Aang and Katara empower the captives to rise up and break free, which they do, and our posse of heroes journeys forward. Aang's path is set. He must master the other three elements to become the Avatar. The gang then heads towards the Northern Air Temple, where Aang is set up and then taken captive by Commander Zhao. However, a masked man called the Blue Spirit breaks Aang out. The Blue Spirit turns out to be Zuko. Aang returns to Sokka and Katara as they finally arrive at the Northern Water Tribe. Commander Zhao catches the wind that Aang, that the Avatar is headed north and grabs his fleet of warships. Zuko tries kidnapping Aang again, but is no match. Zhao is here and he grabs the Moon Spirit in a bag and kills it, causing unbalance once again. Sokka's new girlfriend takes a dip and reincarnates as a fish. Aang jumps up on a wall and enters the Avatar state to create a big wave to stop the Fire Nation and everyone wins. The Fire Lord learns of the loss of the, water, of the Northern Water Tribe and sends Zuko's sister, Azula, after Aang as credits roll. Okay. Did you get all that? <laughs> yes, I got all of it. And Shyamalan, as you said, decided to watch the TV show. And then he said, okay, I'm going to not be creative whatsoever. I am just just like last time, got really sloppy with that last script. And he's, he literally, like you said, took highlights from the first season. This is the first season of the TV show condensed yep. into 90 minutes, which is ridiculous because oh, yeah. the first T, I don't know how long the first season is, but it's probably around 20 episodes or so. And if you peg that at maybe a little over 20 minutes, I mean, you're looking at 400 minutes worth, which is, right. I don't know, like five and a half hours a lot of, of, minutes. of a story and you're you're cutting that into a tiny slice of the pie so i don't want to be negative right off the bat but i'll already say it that the storytelling has significant issues because instead of just telling a story they're trying to hit the highlights right 
So some good things before we, I guess I could probably <laughs> yeah, say just rip into it. <laughs> sort yeah. of. Um, okay, the set design. Honestly, really good set design, uh, which is surprising because the last time the set design was pretty much filmed on the urban outsets of Philadelphia. Or sorry, rural outsides of, of Philadelphia. Here, they actually go outside of Philadelphia for, I think, the first time almost for a long time since uh, Shyamalan started making movies. And the set design, it looks really good. This film, despite its quality in total, looks really good. Oh, yeah, the film does look really good. And I'll even say the CGI has aged very well for yep. the most part. I really found the CGI to be mostly believable and I was very impressed with it. And yeah, the set design, the outdoor locations, and even the green screen lots. I really like the world and the environment that they create. And I guess it's utilized fairly well for the most part. I guess I was fairly impressed with it actually. Yeah. So that's kind of where my compliments end <laughs> with the film. <laughs> uh that's that's literally all i've got was it it looks good i probably my favorite aspect honestly was the cgi mm -hmm. and i think some of the action was filmed very well i don't think Shyamalan quite knows how to build tension and give a solid payoff because right. for instance when we have this 300 style fight with the blue spirit and ang and they're fighting all of those people in slow-mo which i'm like okay you're Pulling off Zack Snyder's 300 here. And then they escape over that bridge. I know, like, this is going to be awesome. The Avatar is just going to, like, fly off and do some cool, cool move. No, he just brings fog in over the bridge. Yep. And they're gone. I'm like, ah, that, that killed it. Dang it. That's anticlimactic. So a lot of this ends in very kind of very quiet, anticlimactic stuff, which maybe that's what they're going for with this right. kind of, like, peaceful Hinduistic worldview. I don't know. Right, and I'll, yeah, I kind of agree with you, uh, and I'll even say the action scenes are part of the reason what kept me in this movie. I'll be honest, around, well, actually, it was around the Blue Spirit scene. I was really looking at that remote and thinking, man, that stop button looks really enticing right now. <laughs> but once this scene came about, it kind of grabbed me back into the movie. Now, it's not fantastic. It's not a great scene, but it was enough to keep me invested in the movie uh, till at least the very end. So I'll say this, the action scenes are nice. The choreography I think is really good. Uh, especially pretty much every time there's air, there's any kind of bending going on, it looks pretty cool in terms of its choreography. Uh, and yeah, the CGI does look very nice. I think it is kind of spotty in some parts. Like anytime they use like an animal, uh, CGI on an animal doesn't look all that great. Um, but the effects when it comes to bending look really, really good. And that's because Industrial Light and Magic did the CGI for those movies. So, of course, it's top notch. Um, so, yeah, that, those are a couple more, I guess, uh, positives I can give uh, for this movie. Music, once again, is fine. June, James Newton Howard returns for the score again. And he, as always, does a fine job. I couldn't help but think James Newton Howard took a lot of cues from John Williams' Star Wars score. Because I, I was constantly thinking... This sounds a lot like Star Wars during action scenes or any other scenes. I think he utilizes probably a lot of uh, horns or trumpets in certain mm -hmm. sections. Yeah, he does. I don't know. I, I know that uh, his score was apparently very well received and praised, which yeah. 
probably was the only real standout aside from, <laughs> as you said, the visual effects. Yeah. But I was I was actually a little disappointed because I didn't honestly feel like the score went very well with this movie. I think I would like something more that we saw in like a crouching tiger, hidden dragon or some kind of, uh, you know, Japanese foreign film that really utilizes, uh, like the, the wires and the Kung Fu a lot better than this. Yeah. I will agree with you that the score, although I give it a, a positive, I do say that it, I don't think it completely fits with the movie hundred uh, percent. The score in the show and the score in the movie are very different, um, obviously. But I still think James Ewan Howard does a fine job here. If you listen to the score outside of the movie, it, it does sound fine. And it's James Howard. It's James Ewan Howard. You know, he he knows what he's doing. But yeah, yeah. yeah, it's nothing that I would consider to be fantastic. But I do think it is good. And it was kind of funny because I was reading a critics review, and they basically said this is Star Wars set in ancient japan almost and there very is there is a lot of uh similarities to that i would say kind yeah. of finding the chosen one and of course this film draws heavily on hinduistic writings of literally the avatar right. and overall just kind of more of a messianic theme of ang is clearly the messiah of this world he is the last one and um, even though I've seen the show, I guess I was kind of confused for all of the absurd exposition that they spoon feed us in the beginning of the film. I didn't even find it sufficient to understanding. Um, so there's a, there's only one avatar, but there's multiple airbenders. So, yeah. So airbenders are not necessarily going to be the avatar. The avatar is just a person that uh, the role is more or less passed on to after the last avatar either is dying or does die. Um, yeah. Reincarnation. So pretty much. Yeah, it's, it's, it's essentially it's essentially reincarnation of the avatar, but the person won't really know it until a bit later in life. Right. In this case, Aang. in the TV show, he does talk to uh, Avatar Roku, I think is his name. Um, where he mostly has visions of Avatar Roku talking to him, and that does kind of help him on his journey. Now, that, that never happens in the movie. That's just in the show. Um, one thing they kind of skipped over. So, yeah, they it is more of a reincarnation kind of a thing uh, when it comes to the Avatar in the Avatar lore, but that's not explained in the movie. That's a TV. That's more explored in the TV show. I couldn't even believe how much they were giving us exposition though, when the two children, Katara and what, what's his name? Osako or something. Sako. Sako. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. These characters are so forgettable, but they're talking to their grandma who just gives them the go ahead to go with them without mm -hmm. blink of an eye. But she's like, grandma, what is this? Or what is that? And I'm like, thanks narrator. Thanks. That is just so poor storytelling to oh, yeah. just have children sit down and then they ask questions the audience is wondering about. But apparently he sh as the years go on, Shyamalan continually forgets how to write a story and he just resorts to just exposition, just exposition dumps. Right. And so we spend too much time on exposition dumps and then he realizes we have to catch up with the train because it's leaving the station. So then we just have really clunky edits and really clunky jump into story beats. I know you were uh, saying how bad the 
I believe you were saying the editing was really bad in the last film. Yep. I would say it's pretty much on par with this film as well. Maybe this one's worse with trying to keep up with what's going on. I think part of the reason too is, and I there's a quote that Shyamalan had, and he addressed the ninety minute, uh, the ninety minutes. Uh, runtime of this movie and how people pretty much everyone was like this is way too short and you're condensing way too much to tell a story of from a tv show that's a season long and he addressed it and he basically said that his mind because of all the other movies that he's done up until this point have been around that 90 minute mark and so his mind keeps him kind of stuck on 90 minutes is about the perfect length. And he says he does, he does this because every other movie he's done is relatively small scale, whereas this one is almost the complete opposite. It's very large scale. So he, he in his mind is thinking, okay, this needs to be 90 minutes in order to correctly tell the story and pace it out correctly. But instead it backfires because you have a lot of chunks just completely missing of them taking time in one area and have it be something that's meaningful um, instead we chop it up. So it keeps around on, I think the total runtime is like an hour 41, which is still kind of long for Shyamalan. But because of that, you have very, very poor storytelling because the editing is just so bad. You jump around then literally in the first hour, like 10 minutes or so we jump around so much that we, every place we spend is just like, okay, well, whatever, because we move on from it. And we never talk about it and it's never referenced ever again and has no impact. Yeah, it doesn't have any impact. And clearly they're also trying to plant seeds because they're dead sure this is going to be part one of a trilogy. Oh, yeah. So who cares if we, like you said, skip around so much and don't come back to these people because we're going to come back to the little boy in the Earth Village that's getting chased around. And Aang gives this awful speech trying to rally the troops yes. and they I, I don't know then they just leave the earth village people or something and the amount of subtitles we got on the screen of northern earth kingdom mm -hmm. southern air temple it was like one every five minutes almost oh yeah and i i couldn't follow it and at that point i became disengaged because i was i was actually going with this movie clearly there's a lot of acting issues but I was going with the movie until eventually I thought, what, what is the point of all this? Like you said, like, who cares? Like, where's our goal and destination? And right. I'm still not even sure why they go to the Northern water temple. Like, I feel like we're talking about a Zelda video game here. <laughs> um, they go there and has something to do with the water spirits. I don't, I don't know, but yeah, a lot of pacing issues. Oh, yeah. This is probably, in my mind, Shyamalan's uh, worst paced, worstly. It's this movie that has the worst pacing. That every, every movie that he's made has had better pacing than this movie. This movie has abysmal pacing, and that's because it has abysmal editing. Uh, it's, and it's even disjointed, too, because the first hour goes by so fast. And then once we get to the Northern Water Tribe or whatever, then it just slows down. And actually starts explaining things, kind of, and actually gives us time to even develop somewhat of an understanding and relationship with the northern tribe here uh, before the Fire Nation attacks and tries to build some kind of emotional attachment. It's so disjointed that editing here is so disjointed. And I was in it until uh, I think it was right around the time uh, that Aang was forcefully taken on board by uh by zuko onto this onto his ship because that happens just so fast and once he gets onto the ship 
that's already episode I think two of this of the of the show two or yeah I think it's like episode two of the show when he's aboard his ship and then escapes and so we things are just flying by and we're missing a lot of things a lot of detail and a lot of substance to make these stops that we have meaningful because in the show you know they have a whole episode dedicated to a lot of these segments which takes a lot of time to build emotional attachment and understand why we're here. The movie, though, because it's so poorly edited and so poorly paced, we don't get that. And I thought when we did first meet Zuko, Dave Patel's performance was very, it was either melodramatic or at the same time over the top. I thought it was incredibly ridiculous, which, of course, translates to animation far easier because Mm -hmm. they're literally cartoon characters, whereas these are people trying to emulate cartoon characters, which usually doesn't work very well. So uh, yeah, these characters are really unbelievable. And at the same time, I'm not even sure I necessarily blame all of these actors. I'm thinking I'm a lot of the blame rests at Shyamalan's feet because Shyamalan has already from the sixth sense pretty much onward has worked with always A-list, very seasoned actors in all of his movies that really probably don't need a lot of direction. Um, It's just incredible how he's been able to get top-notch talent. And really, how could he give them a lot of direction? Because they know what they're doing, and he hasn't been a director for that long. So he probably hasn't had a lot of opportunities to actually direct people. I don't know this for certain. I could be wrong. He could have been working his bahookie off to try and get these people to exhibit more realistic emotions and not just kind of give these blase please all the time. Um, But I don't think it's necessarily their fault. I'm thinking Shyamalan is, doesn't really know how to direct them very well. And then at the same time, Shyamalan doesn't necessarily know how to, he's, he's kind of torn between a massive world fantasy world building film and trying to maintain these kind of intimate character driven moments that he pretty much all of his preceding films have been about Shyamalan's never written a massive fantasy a film within a huge scope like right. Peter Jackson's The Lord of the Rings they've always been very intimate character studies for the most part right and I think the other part too and this and this is kind of coming from what I picked up on the interviews and stuff uh Shyamalan is not in his prime this is not where he wants to be and this is not necessarily a place where he with the most of his filmmaking and the best part of his best parts of his filmmaking come out uh he's mentioned this i I mentioned a quote earlier where he wanted to get down to 90 minutes and he does another quote that he says that he just fell into this trap more or less of the hollywood circle and is dealing with big budget movies where his which is not where his uh where he wants to be he wants to be in more small scale lower budget movies and that's why he finances his movies now uh, is probably because of this movie. And so that's my guess too, is that he's just in a place after having, after running off of the success of his previous movies, he's at a place now where he doesn't really, at a place where he shouldn't be because of how he, how he actually makes films. He's in a different, different place where he's having to deal with an actual big name studio to help direct this picture. And he has a lot of money at his feet. So I wonder if that's also part of it too, is that He's trying to stay within himself, trying to stay with, okay, this is what I'm used to, keeping things 90 minutes to small scale, while also dealing with a picture that's very large scale, and that must be like closer to two hours, if not much longer than that, to tell the story correctly. And you're absolutely right, which further begs the question, 
why did they even pick Shyamalan to write this film? First of all, right. I know Shyamalan always has to say written, produced, and directed by M. Night Shyamalan. Okay, but put that bit of ego aside. They needed to have different writers or creative consultants. And from what I understand, the original creators prefer to think this film doesn't exist. And they felt they weren't well consulted on this film. Right. Now, I know that they, in the beginning, I think I mentioned this, the creators were totally on board for Shaolin to get in and start making this movie. Um, but yeah, they have since kind of retracted that. And I think, once again, that's just because of Shaolin's name. Because he, at this point, even though he is, at, up until this point, his movies have been kind of inconsistent with the last few. But he still made very high-quality movies before. So they were wondering if maybe he would be able to take justice or do justice for uh the for their story of Avatar the Last Airbender in a live action form in a about feature length format. Obviously that's not what happens here. So that's just my guess is given Shaolin's fame that he's gotten up to the, till this point and uh that he wasn't really where he needs to be where in his prime, I think we're having an issue, an imbalance issue, which is funny because we deals a lot with a, a lot of unbalance uh in nature in the film. That's also happening outside the movie where Shaman doesn't really want to be here, but he just doesn't know it at the time until after the movie's made and after everyone has their ever after the critics just rip it to shreds. Yeah, and speaking of imbalanced, is sometimes I think this film has some really great cinematography, and then other times it feels just very cheap or run of the mill. So I don't know what direction was given behind the camera, but I was thinking specifically of the scene where Aang is given up. Um, he's been betrayed by one of the monks in the, I think it's like the Northern Air Temple or the Southern Air Temple, I don't know. Yeah. And when all those arrows come through and you see all of the Fire Nation soldiers running in and it's just that shot of the horrified looking monk slowly backing away. I'm like, that is a shot that I could see. It, the film hadn't come out yet, but that's just that's the kind of shot that Christopher Nolan would use in like the Dark Knight Rises, for instance, um, when he's down in the pits or whatever, when when Bruce Wayne is. I'm like, dang, that is a really good shot. And that yeah. does not fit within this movie. <laughs> the the caliber of the film. I'm like, that's kind of a real great moment of genius there behind the camera. But we really don't ever get that again. Right. And I mean, there are also sequences too where, like, for, and we mentioned this earlier, I, I think you did actually, with the Earthbenders. There's this scene where it's just this super long take. Yep. And there really isn't a good reason for it to be super long, I guess. There's a few long takes in this movie, but this is probably the best example of it where the shot just goes on for a long time and you do get to see somewhat in real time uh, the uh, Aang, and, Aang and friends show up. Then they empower the people and they uh, overthrow uh, the Fire Nation that's enslaved them. It's just, it's weird. It, it doesn't really fit. That's another shot that doesn't really fit within the movie, within the context, because it it goes on for way too, it goes on for a long time, but there aren't a lot of sequences that do that, where there's a lot of sweeping shots and it's a lot of moving camera when it comes to these action scenes, or at least this scene alone in particular, that is more of an uprising. Yeah, before we give our final thoughts, I also am disappointed with how the climax is handled because it feels far too muddled because we're focusing on way too many characters. Oh, yeah. 
And particularly, I think what was wildly unnecessary and head scratching, I did actually fall asleep during this part, but I, <laughs> I rewound it. Don't worry. So I know what I'm talking about. Okay. So they constantly are focusing on the yin and yang fish. Yep. And then Aang is also having to meditate, go into the spirit world to talk to the giant dragon. And there's this barely their subplot of Sako and the princess yep. and her life. And then, of course, we have to deal with Zuko and his uncle. And then the general that supposedly had Zuko assassinated and it becomes so incredibly muddled and the moon turns red. And they capture him in a water ball. It's it's just like what's going on. You have you clearly have no idea how to focus on characters during this sequence and make it even coherent. And uh, what's going on? And giant uh, giant Gila monsters like lizards. What? <laughs> yeah, the show does a really good job at explaining this entire mess because it takes two episodes to get to this climax. Uh, just to explain things and get it to a point where it's serviceable and actually works. Unfortunately, in the movie, they condense that, you know, into about 20 minutes worth of screen time. And yeah, the, the, literally the entire subplot of, of, uh, Sokka and the princess or whatever her name is, is just explained to us through Katara, who essentially does, only does that throughout this <laughs> entire movie. Is just not well. <laughs> no, it just, all she does is just explain things to us. And then Sokka's the other way around where all he does is nag. The only thing he does in this movie is nag Katara not to do this, not to do that. He does nothing else, which is totally backwards from his, uh, from his character in the story or in the, in the TV show, because he's mostly the comic relief in the TV show. Whereas in the movie, that is completely stripped out. And he is very, always always very serious and always has to nag about everything in every scene. And so his character is just kind of reduced to essentially nothing and could have been completely written out of this movie and nothing would have changed. I can't think of one thing that he does that's really pivotal to the plot. And every character should have their moment to say, I'm here for a reason. Yeah. <laughs> and oh, yeah. Uh, he doesn't. I guess the princess does because she gives her life. To, so the moon won't be red again, but but once again, cut. Don't even include the guy stabbing the yang fish and it and the world going out of balance. It's right. totally unnecessary and completely distracting from this. Not to mention, um, I hate it in full in first installments when they go do their quote Battle of Helm's Deep. Mm -hmm. where it's kind of their big budget battle that has a lot of things riding on it. We're not there yet. Oh, we, no. mo we most recently saw this, I would say, with the movie Mortal Engines, which feels like Lord of the Rings 1, 2, and 3 all in, yeah, 90, 100-minute film. And it's like, no, 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 no. You, you've, you clearly have run out of things to tell in your story if you're jumping to like the climax of the saga. Right. Which is what I feel this is. Right. And and part of that, too, is because uh, this is, in my mind, the only segment, only sequence in the entire movie where I feel we actually take some time, not a lot of time, but some time to explain where we're at, why we're here and try to develop some kind of emotional depth. Now, it doesn't do it very well, but 
it that is something that is in this this entire sequence of them at the northern water tribe they do slow down to a point where it's somewhat digestible considering the rest of the movie that we have here so i'll give Shyamalan that at least the ending has a little bit more emotional stakes to it than the rest of the movie but once again it's not like it does it very well anyways because yeah it just makes no sense uh or at least they don't explain it very well as to why these things are happening why commander zhao has got to stab the fish why the, <laughs> the, the why the blood moon comes out why the lady the princess has to sacrifice her life that's all explained very well in the show but when it comes to the movie they spend no time on that and so it's just like okay well whatever uh this is a movie i guess when i was watching it at least yeah not to mention we don't have any attachment to any of these characters oh no no so i don't even i can't even remember their names because they've been on screen for all of two and a half minutes and uh the, yeah the other thing is you're right they do slow down at this portion, but unfortunately, there's I don't think there's enough character moments. Um, no, it's no. like you said, it's either monologuing from Katara or what I found to be fairly boring um, kind of Tai Chi movements that didn't really have much explanation to them. I guess they're just practicing and I guess you have to make certain movements in order to bend certain elements of the earth. Once again, totally not explained. It, just something you got to memorize i mm -hmm. guess and you you can do it i guess it's kind of like the force um yeah in a way i've felt a little bit of that um which star wars takes a lot from hinduism as well but that's a discussion for a totally separate time mm -hmm. uh but anyways yeah i just Shyamalan doesn't really give us those he gives us a breath but i think he needed to implement more character moments more dialogue between the characters instead of just these really silent tai chi movements oh yeah no absolutely they're needed to, with a show that's really character centric uh it, it's kind of a slap in the face when you have a movie like this that's kind of the opposite where you spend so little time with every single character they're essentially like in Sokka's case completely rendered useless yeah and my other problem is we are watching this film within the context within the scope of just a single installment and we will never as far as I know, we will never have, unless, Shyam surprise, next year Shyamalan's coming back with Avatar 2, <laughs> <laughs> the second airbender. Right. Um, but we're seeing the story within, we're only seeing a third of the story. Mm -hmm. there, we are never seeing the full story. So that alone makes the film really hard to care about and be invested in and to even think about. And maybe if this was a uh, maybe if this was a completed trilogy, then I would be more okay with this film because that would clearly alter my view of these characters because we would have spent episodes two and three with them and not right. just episode one. But we're never going to get that. So that as well is a real kind of black mark, I would say, on the film. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, Alan. I have a feeling I know what you're going to say, but let's talk about it anyways. What is your rating and recommendation for Avatar The Last Airbender? It was no surprise what I was getting myself into this time around, kind of like that happening, but this is a little bit different because this is a brand new, I've not seen this movie before outside of the TV show. So I, but I already knew kind of what I was going to get myself into. And aside from, you know, the good set design and the good music, and the pretty good action scenes and the martial arts and choreography that's on display here, this movie is kind of really bad. 
Um, that's because, and I think mostly this movie has most of its issues, not all of it, but a lot of its issues stem because of the editing. The editing here is really bad. This is some of the worst editing I've seen from Shaolin in all of his movies, including the first two. And that's because he takes a TV show that's 20 or however many episodes long, however many hours long, uh, and then condenses it down to an hour in roughly 40 minutes of screen time. That's not enough time to correctly build up relationships, get through all the important moments that they need to to build the story, and have a satisfying conclusion. That's not enough time for almost any movie of this caliber. They need more time. This needs to be closer to two and a half, if not two hours and 45 minutes to in order to really grasp what this show is all about in a movie format. A lot of characters, I mentioned this earlier, a lot of characters are kind of just squashed down to almost either shells of what character, shells of the character they were in the show, or they were completely useless. Katara, all she does is just spill exposition. Sokka, on the other hand, all he does is nag. It's just, what this is, is just a highlight reel. That's all it is. It's a highlight reel of the greatest hits of the show. It's like a fan-made, high-quality fan-made highlight reel of the show. So, no, it's not good. And no, I can't recommend it. But because of the, some of the positives that are there, I will give it a 2 out of 10. But it's only because of those positives. Otherwise, this would have been a straight 1 out of 10. So, yeah, one out of, 2 out of 10, not recommend. The Last Airbender is a sloppy rehashing of the first season of the beloved TV series. Shyamalan provides poor direction to his cast, so they come across as cheesy, uninteresting, and at times melodramatic. Giving us a Cliff Notes version of the first season doesn't make for an exciting story, but rather a soulless, muddled copy and paste with a bit of excising. I'm sad to say this because initially the film really did have potential, but after the first act, the plot becomes so disjointed it becomes hard to follow, and there's nothing here to give a reason to care. Also, clearly making this film a part one instead of a standalone story greatly diminishes any rewatchability. Don't get me wrong, this isn't a bad film, it's just not a good one. Yes, it is watchable and a significant step up from Shyamalan's previous two entries. The Last Airbender receives five stars out of ten with a mild not recommend. So the question becomes... Where do we go from here? Obviously, there's not going to be another two sequels. But... As far as we know. As far as we know, yes. <laughs> uh, there have been people have asked about it, and they said the general question is, I don't know from everyone that they've asked that's been connected to this movie. But Netflix is coming out with a live-action show uh, for Avatar The Last Airbender. Um, now, this will be completely disconnected from what we see here. This is only completely on its own. It's completely in-house by Netflix. Um, but there will be more Airbender uh, for your Airbender enjoyment. It's just not going to be with Shyamalan. Uh, as far as that's all the deals that have been released, there it won't be with Shyamalan. It's just a completely own thing. Uh, it's not going to be anything. There are so far no sequels planned for what we see here, um, probably ever for what we see here. But could happen. We'll see. I guess in the future. Yeah, from what I understand, the possibility for a sequel. So Paramount was like, let's test the waters because we gave you a ton of money writing on this film. Yeah. Let's test the waters and see how well it does the box office. And yeah, it did okay. But because it had that really poor audience and critics reaction, from what I understand, it wasn't like this big thing like, no, we're not going to uh, put it out, put a sequel out. Paramount just kind of like let it all just slide into the oblivion, like mm -hmm. pretending this movie kind of never happened and... They just got dead quiet on it whenever 
Avatar 2 was brought up. But I did read as late as 2015, five years after the release of this film, four, which would be four years ago, in 2015, Shyamalan said he was going to possibly develop a sequel. Right. So, but then that's that's absolutely not going to happen. Clearly, Shyamalan did develop a sequel to one of his previous films, just not this. We're not going to talk about that just quite yet. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it was a year ago to the month that the creators of the original show said they were partnering with Netflix to create a live action remake of their TV show. And if I was to guess, we would probably, I bet it'll drop on Netflix probably a year from now. Yeah, I'd say it's probably a safe bet. It'd be interesting to see what the live action rendition would, would look like. I don't know if it's necessarily necessary for them to be continuing the Avatar stuff. Um, I think the TV show suffices and it was just released on Blu-ray. But yeah. hey, I guess we'll see. I guess we'll see what happens when it releases on Netflix here in a little bit. Well, if I'm not mistaken, Netflix's live action track record with adapting animes isn't a strong one. The last time I remember was Death Note, which I absolutely <laughs> adore the anime and the film was a very bad. poor imitation. Yeah, it was bad. <laughs> Let's just say it. <laughs> Let's just it say was it was bad. bad. So I guess I have hope because the original creators are coming on board. But then at the same time, it's just like, why? Like, I don't get it. Um, but Netflix did have a lot of success, I would say, with the fantasy uh, redo of The Dark Crystal, which I, I highly recommend listeners. Please go watch that. I I love that show. That is incredible fantasy world building. So um, this is what we need for the Avatar. Clearly, it's a big, rich world, and it needs lots of time to breathe. Um, so I'm I'm curious. And Netflix has kind of been on a roll lately. They're also adapting The Witcher into live action, which comes out I think this Christmas. That looks really good as well. So we'll see. But as for what Shyamalan has. In store, um, Shyamalan is going science fiction? Yeah, he's going for After Earth with uh, father-son duo of uh, Will Smith and Jaden Smith for After Earth. Yeah, I don't know a thing about that movie. I have never seen it, and I've never seen a trailer, so it'll be completely brand new to me. The only thing I've seen from it is, I think, a scene or a chunk of it, but I have not watched it all the way through. All I know is uh people consider to be boring apparently so let's go find out okay well i'm going to be honest listeners i'm i'm kind of setting my hopes up for for the next one i'm thinking it might be better than better than i think it is gonna be so i'm fingers crossed yeah i'm curious i actually haven't seen it all the way through so i'm just curious to see what my thoughts are going to be watching it all the way through for the first time so like i said only seen about small chunks of it All right, Alan, thank you so much for joining me. Sure thing. And thank you, listeners, for joining us. And we will see you next week after Earth. Hey, listeners, it's Corbin. Don't forget to check out the exciting links in the description below that will connect you with more great movie reviews for your listening pleasure and our YouTube Facebook, and Twitter page, and of course, our official website where you can read great articles and sign up for our free weekly newsletter. 
Also, if you want exclusive bonus content such as extra movie reviews, movie commentaries, and our thoughts on the latest movie news and trailers, plus more, then check out our Patreon page. It's a great way to help keep this show free, and it gives you great content that's yours to keep. All of that and more is found in the description below. Don't forget to subscribe whether you're on YouTube, Apple, Google, or Stitcher, or your favorite podcast service. And while you're at it, please leave us a five-star review so other movie lovers can more easily find our podcast. We love talking about movies, and we love talking about them with you. So don't forget to share with your friends and family, and we'll see you next week, listeners. The Silver Screen Guide podcast is edited and produced by Alan and Corbin. Intro and outro music is created by Thomas Rankin. The thoughts and opinions herein expressed are those of the individual and do not necessarily represent those held by Silver Screen Guide. Silver Screen Guide is not affiliated with any company or individual involved with the creation of this movie or TV show. No portion of the podcast may be used without express written permission from Silver Screen Guide.